Hello, everyone. Welcome to Free Kiwis, episode four. Today, we're very pleased and honored to have Professor Salvatore Bobones, Professor of Sociology at the University of Sydney. Um, uh, he's a wide-ranging author. His books include The International Structure of Income from 2009, American Tianjia, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, Chinese Money, American Power, and the End of History of 2017, and an excellent book, um, The New Authoritarianism, Trump Populism, and the Tyranny of Experts, uh, which I'm holding in my hands, of course. If you're listening to this podcast, you won't be able to see it, but we'll add the link below the podcast so that you can check that volume out. That was from 2018. And Salvatore is a prolific contributor to outlets like Sydney Morning Herald, uh, Quadrant, and uh, Foreign Policy, among other places. So, uh, Salvatore, I, I wanted to actually start out with uh, Trump, because obviously we just had an election in the States, and uh, it looks like the pollsters were a bit off again. Uh, a few percentage points. Of course, in the end, a lot of uh, male votes came in and it, you know, changed the way things looked like they were going, but it still looks to be the case that the pollsters got it slightly wrong. Do you agree with that analysis? Is that the case that the pollsters largely got it wrong? And if so, why well, do you think that happened? The pollsters got it very wrong. <laughs> Remember, the polls don't predict elections. The polls give percentage vote expectations. So they're telling us the mean expected vote for Trump uh, or Biden. And the polls were on average a good five percentage points off. And we might just put that down to random error, except the fact that poll after poll after poll had the same five percentage points, plus or minus a little bit the wrong way, which strongly suggests we're looking at a bias, not a simple random error. Do you think it is a bias or is it um, what they might call the, the shy Tory effect in the UK? Well, I mean, what people call a shy Trump voter is just another word for social desirability bias. Uh, bias is anything that consistently results in a uh, incorrect estimate uh, in the same direction. Of course. Uh, so if yeah. we if we have a scale that consistently shows you too heavy, that's a biased scale. If you have a scale that's just inaccurate, sometimes it would be too heavy or too light. It's so unbiased, uh, but nonetheless inaccurate scale to, to, to clarify then you you don't you don't necessarily think it's sample bias as in the polling method is not essentially getting a representative sample or versus versus that social desirability factor uh, a social desirability bias is the simplest most obvious explanation it could be a bias in the samples but we would have to hope that the polling firms would have corrected any such biases after the 2016 debacle. Uh, the polling firms make very little information available about their methodologies, so it's almost impossible to tell what they're doing. They're particularly shy, to use that word, about revealing uh, their sampling methods because they're very well aware that the days of simple random sampling to produce a sample for a poll are long gone. We believe, though we don't have information on this, that the response rates for most political polls today are somewhere on the order of 3%. Uh, we know that the Pew Global Attitudes Project, the you know maybe the world's most professional polling organization, they're only able to get response rates of 6% for telephone polls. And that's with a minimum of six callbacks over a period of three days. So if Pew is only getting 6% response rates, the commercial polling firms are probably down where they're rumored to be around 3%, which 
which means that everything is about who's in the sample. Yes. Not about, you know, how good are their, how large are their sample size. No, it, it seems to me almost inevitable that there's sample bias based on that very low response rate because the characteristics of people who respond are likely to be significantly different to, to those of people who don't. Well, that's true, except that uh, everyone has essentially gone backwards in time to uh, use forms of quota sampling. Uh, when I used to teach social research methods in late 1990s, early 2000s, I would teach quota sampling as an old-fashioned approach where a, you know, a, a a magazine or a, a, a consumer research organization might assemble a panel. And if it was in the United States, it might have 50 African-Americans, 50 Latino-Americans, make sure there were 25 uh, you know, uh, older women, 25 younger women, 50 middle-aged women, et cetera, et cetera, to have quotas of people of different demographics from which they could just generalize and assume that people who demographically resemble other people vote like they do. Uh, now, that turned out to be wrong in the 2016 election polling in the United States, where one of the main reasons pollsters said they got things wrong was they did not include education level as part of their quota system. And it turned out, as Donald Trump very famously said, he loves the less educated. It turned out that the less educated tended to vote for Donald Trump, irrespective of income. Uh, pollsters had been using income categories, but without accounting for education categories. Now, Quota sampling is a old-fashioned, very primitive approach to polling that we've long known. I mean, for 50 years, we've known that simple random sampling produces far more reliable estimates than quota sampling. But we can't get a simple random sample of people to answer the phone. Uh, so are the quotas correct? <laughs> Who knows, right? It's uh, Polling simply has to accept that it, it can no longer produce reliable, or even, it seems, unbiased polls uh, on contentious political issues. Indeed. You, you put your finger on one of the problems, I guess, which is that in order to approximate a ra the reliability of a random sample, you, you need to know the dimensions that matter and include those in your, your quota. And you, you cited education level as something that they missed. And, of course, it's, it's never clear what all the other dimensions that you might have missed could be. It's never clear until after the fact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by then it's too late. Uh, polls really should be viewed at this point as for entertainment purposes. They attract clicks. They're a lot of fun to talk about, uh, but they're not going to tell us the outcome of an election. On the on the Shia Tory effect or the Shia Trumper effect, I should say, I, I was looking around the five thirty eight website around the election, and there was someone who was writing for that, not Nate Silver, who was sort of poo pooing the Shia Trumper effect right. and saying the the way that we have been able to ascertain. So he thought that it's not a big thing is that there's not a big difference between the responses we get via phone and via online polling. And I think in 2016, there was an effect in that direction that the online polls were slightly more accurate. I'm not sure if I'm right about that, but well, that's what the I Results recall. speak for themselves. And uh, on top of everything else, the Rasmussen poll, which uses a non-human pre-recorded voice, uh, seems to have got things closer both in 2016 and in 2020. But honestly, I don't know. I mean, if the pollsters would give us all their raw data and their models, we could ascertain whether or not there was uh, social desirability bias inherent in the polling. The problem is with quota sampling, all bets are off the table anyway. I mean, we really, 
need to stop talking about polls as if they were based on sampling theory. It, you know, we can't add these plus or minus 3% that we typically do for a poll of six or 800 people because that plus or minus 3% is based on random sampling theory. No random sample, no, no confidence intervals. It, right. These are purely for, you know, they're purely indicative. These are not uh, going to predict elections for us. As you say, they're talking points for media pundits more than accurate information. And they are useful for politicians, for people fronting for office, because even if they have biases, they can still help political campaigns target where they want to devote resources. That is, as long as the bias is consistent geographically, which it may not be, uh, it would still tell you where you're most ahead and where you're most behind and where you're in the middle, uh, despite the fact that all your numbers may be too, li- too high or too low. Right, so just to draw out what you said before with the Rasmussen poll, because I think you wrote, wrote about this in your uh, Sydney Morning Herald piece as well. Right. They were using uh, recorded electronic voices, and the theory is that because it's not a, a real person, uh, people don't feel the same social pressure, right? That they, They're very unwilling to say, I will vote for Trump to someone who's actually talking to them on the phone. Um, if it's a pre-recorded voice, the theory is they feel a bit less pressure. Uh, maybe we They should- were using a pre Pre-recorded voice and a you know touchpad response system to indicate your preference. Now that has historically been viewed as a cheaper, less desirable way to do polling because so many people hang up on it or won't answer. Or you know, the, the theory has been that people are more when people are socially engaged in the conversation, they're less likely to be impolite and hang up on a human pollster, and, and that may be true, uh, but. If you believe that people won't hang up on a human pollster because they're too polite to do so, then you also have to believe in social desirability bias, that <laughs> they care what the human pollster thinks about them. So the Rasmussen organization has actually been using a cheaper <laughs> form of polling that everyone may move towards in the future, uh, but it's hard to say. And even Rasmussen uh, makes no great claims about its response rates. So it's probably also having to rely on quota samples in order to generalize to a population. To move to a, a related issue, what, what, what's your take on all the leading legal proceedings that are now in train following the American election? Do you, do you think there's, oh. there's any evidence that there has been widespread spread voter fraud or, or is it just um, smoke and mirrors? Look, obviously, I'm not an election law expert. I don't know whether or not there's been voter fraud. Is there evidence Certainly there's evidence. Is there widespread evidence? Well, that's something, you know, that we have to see the the court decisions in order to find out uh, the truth. Mostly, I'm just happy the cases are being pursued. I was especially happy to see the Georgia recount go forward, and even the second recount in Georgia, because many of us, and not just me, uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post before this year, both described uh, Georgia's electronic voting machines as a disaster waiting to happen, as vulnerable to tampering, uh, you know, as insecure. Well, suddenly they found them absolutely secure after the result was of of Joe Biden election. Well, I'm very dubious about the security of electronic voting machines, and I was very happy to see the recount. Now, the recount did find, you know, SD cards that had not been properly uploaded, that sort of thing. But it did not find uh, that the votes recorded by the machines differed from the votes cast by people. Uh, So, you know, that's cause for hope. It doesn't mean the machines are not, I'm sorry, it doesn't mean the machines are secure, but it does mean that no one apparently 
exploited the insecurities in this case of the Georgia election. Now, I'd like to see more of those kind of safeguards prompted by court cases or prompted by uh, you know, simple administrative action just to make sure that the vote was the vote, that things were conducted legally. I, I see no reason why we shouldn't take all of the available time, and of course, the Electoral College has not yet been appointed, take all of the available time to make sure that the vote was secure. The, this is putting, putting in place, these kind of challenges force people to put in place safeguards that next time will ensure a more secure election. So I'm thrilled that the court cases are going forward. Now, many of them have been dismissed. They've been dismissed. But I'm glad Trump is fighting this, even if it you know, may be a waste of money. It's not a waste of time. I, I agree. I think, in fact, it's it's not a waste of money if it can secure American democracy for the future. Because to me, the great worry is that if the the complaints were not resolved, that there would be ongoing questions about the fairness and and propriety of American elections. Do you think, though, that there's going to be enough votes uh, in any scenario, any realistic scenario for the result to be overturned? And, and if not, uh, do you think that it's well past the time for Trump to, to, to have conceded the, the Electoral College? I, I don't see any. First of all, there's there's no legal implication of Trump conceding. And so I see no reason for him to concede. He has now initiated uh, transition planning with the incoming Biden administration, which is in a sense an acknowledgement that uh, his cases are not going to swing the election. Uh, if he wanted to concede, Fine. I, you know, I, I don't advise him not to concede. I simply think it's, you know, everyone needs to slow down and realize that we don't have to have. It's more important to have the election done right than to have the election done all on one day. And I have, I see no reason why we should be so concerned about, you know, a few weeks here or there. I mean, Biden is ridiculous to claim that. You know, thousands of Americans are going to die because of his lack of ability to plan his uh, transition in January. Uh, really, you know, relax everyone, slow down. We have constitutional procedures in place for everything. You know, let the process work itself out. Mm. It's kind of interesting because I was I was in the states for the two Obama elections and things were called very quickly on election nights, right? Because those are back in the days when polling still generally did work. And I think this time people were expecting a similar effect where, you know, once you get a big enough lead, then the people and the pollsters and the media call it and, and that's it. But in this election, we had this combination of a lot of mail ballots and also the sociological fact that uh, there's this polarization specifically on the issue of COVID. So that the people who are more likely to vote in person were more likely to vote for Trump. And that meant that this huge percentage of the mail votes that came in late were for Biden. And that's why I think, you know, leaving aside the, the stuff that we've been discussing, it, it's, it was easy for people to think, oh, there must be something up with this, even if there wasn't, because they suddenly saw all this huge, huge number of Biden votes, even though that, that can also be explained by this process that I've just, uh, Look, I've just Media through. organizations call an election has no legal effect. Uh, the problem is that it does create expectations. So let's say that a, an investigation in Michigan and Pennsylvania determined that there was actually some you know, massive illegal dump of ballots in both Philadelphia and Detroit. 
I'm not saying it happened. I want to be clear. I have no evidence that it's happened. I'm giving the hypothetical situation. Let's say it did happen. Let's say that there actually was illegal activity on a large scale in highly populous states that would swing the election. And two weeks later, you know, after election day, that was revealed. And suddenly Trump is the winner of the election. Well, calling the election on election night or soon thereafter Create social expectations such that then the narrative would become, ironically, Trump stole the election. Yet, in fact, it would have been illegal behavior on Trump's part of Trump's opponents that's, that were attempting to steal the election. Uh, I, I really think we need to let, uh, it's better if we simply let legal processes take their course, let everything be investigated, then let's call the election. I, I, I'm in no hurry on election night or the day after to have a result that, you know, then creates a, an atmosphere of inevitability, which if it were ever to be overturned, if that inevitability were ever to be punctured and it turns out, no, no, that wasn't the legal result, uh, well, then there, that's a recipe for violence and protests and looting and, you know, all sorts of anger in the streets, which, you know, never should be the response to a, a legal uh, election win. Indeed. And if we look ahead, you know, a few months and if things go as we might expect and eventually Biden becomes president, what do you foresee the effects will be on the very obvious polarization that's evident in American society? Do you, do you think that the removal of Trump as a, a kind of lightning rod for all of this media attention and hatred um, will settle down, or, or do you do you see ongoing division um, with ongoing problems in that regard? Uh, first, uh, your question assumes that Donald Trump will exit the scene. <laughs> I have no reason to believe that Donald Trump will exit the scene. I strongly suspect that for the next four years, Donald Trump will be holding campaign rallies every month, reminding everyone that he's the rightful president and uh, the election was stolen, et cetera, et cetera. And to some extent, he will have a case. I, I mean, the election was seems not to have been stolen in any legal sense. But let's remember that had the same rules been in place on election day as were in place six months ago, Trump would probably have won the election. Uh, that is, it's only the changing of the rules of the game just before the election that really swung it towards Joe Biden. The you know the margins of victory are small, and the rule changes all favored uh, all favored Biden. So uh, Trump will be making this case repeatedly for the next four years, uh, stoking division and. I think that's a good thing. Uh, that is, he will keep American politics on its toes. We, we will have a, another rec record turnout for the midterm elections in 2022. Midterm elections in the U.S. are usually sleepy affairs in which very few people vote. Well, 2018 changed that, and 2022 will change that again. I think it's great that we finally see people giving Americans clear choices. If, if you don't know who you like, the Democrats or the Republicans in today's America, you've been living in a cave. <laughs> and that's and that's good for democracy because it means we have clear choices and people go to the polls because they feel correctly that their vote will have an effect on policy. They they feel correctly that, to use Barack Obama's phrase, elections have consequences. Uh, when Obama was elected, he's the one who said that. And in fact, his election had 
almost no consequence for the broader direction of American policy. Uh, well, the Trump election did have a, a massive effect, and the Biden election is going to have, I think, a big effect on policy come January. And then again, maybe in January 2024, uh, we'll see another big change. And, and that's what we need from democracy, clear choices in elections that have consequences. Yeah, it's a far cry from the days in the 90s and the early 2000s when all the commentators were saying, we need people to get more interested in democracy, more interested in politics. And now it's almost the opposite. The people are more worried about this sort of over overzealousness on Twitter and things like that. Can I just go back to what you said before? Because so, you, you mentioned something I hadn't really heard much about, and that is the uh, rule changes you were saying. Do you, do you want to go into that in a bit more depth? What, what, what rule changes in particular? Or just can you well, outline those? There were... Uh... There were a series of rule changes to encourage mail-in voting, extended deadlines for mail-in voting. Several states simply mailed ballots or uh, ballot applications to everybody in the state. Uh, you know, the electoral calculus in the U.S. has long been that high turnout uh, favors Democrats, low turnout fa favors Republicans. Republicans are more motivated to vote uh, by pushing people into voting. Uh, well, that resulted in a higher turnout for Democrats. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. In many ways, it's a good thing. I, I would prefer higher turnout if done in a responsible way. And I do have quarrels, serious quarrels with the way mail, mail ballots were, uh, postal ballots were handled in this election. Uh, but broadly speaking, uh, you know, the rule change, not broadly speaking, in every case, the rule changes favored Democratic turnout uh, over Republican turnout. And, you know, had the much firmer, much more restrictive rules on postal ballots, what we call absentee ballots, uh, been in place this year, Donald Trump probably would have won. Uh, you know, the U.S. has always had absentee ballots, meaning if you requested a ballot, you could get one sent to you that you could then fill out in the privacy of your home. States have been moving towards mass postal ballots, meaning that a ballot's just mailed to everyone. You can use it if you want to use it. People can coerce you into using it. A community center in California, it's perfectly legal for a church or community center or old age home to get all of its members or clients together in a big room, fill out the ballots together under the supervision of a shop steward or under the supervision of an administrator. And that administrator then picks them all up and hands them in in a batch. Now, that's crazy to me. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the end of the secret ballot yes. in America. It's a re return to the 19th century, return to conditions before we got what we call the Australian ballot. <laughs> that is a ballot that must be personally uh, uh, filled out in secret <laughs> and asked yourself. So, you know, these changes, I think, I mean, I don't think they contribute. I don't think they would have added 30 percent, 40 percent to the Biden vote. But if they added 5% to the Biden vote, that's the election right there. Mm. Can I, since this is a, a New Zealand, uh, free, free Kiwis is the name of the podcast, I just wanted to put you on the spot for a minute. Uh, I appreciate sure. you. You may not have been paying attention to the all-important New Zealand election in quite the same way. I've but heard it, of it. <laughs> but it is, it is interesting to me that we had, you know, also a lot of mail ballots this year for similar reasons because of COVID. Um, and there was, a, there was also a polling error but I think in this case, it was around 3%, and it was actually to the left. The left won by more, Labour and the Greens, but especially Labour, won by slightly more than people expected. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'd appreciate it. I just asked you this first, out of the blue. First, first I don't know. Um, second, New Zealand is more complicated from a polling standpoint because it's not a straightforward two-party system. 
uh, like the U.S. And in many ways, Australia is almost a, a two-party system, though with complexity. But pollsters do ask the two-power to party preferred vote in Australia. Uh, how New Zealand's multi-party system is captured by pollsters, honestly, I am really not up on. No, it is a more complicated system that's more difficult to understand. James, James is right, though, and and in fact, I was surprised by the extent to which the the polls w- were wrong in the in previous elections. They they on average haven't done badly. They've been within one or two percentage points of the of the correct outcome for the the two major parties, uh, and this time they weren't. I, I'd probably put it down to something to do with. COVID, although James is also right that there were more postal ballots and and there are also a lot more early votes. So there's a lot of voting going on while the campaign is still well and truly in train. And that, I mean, I'm quite shocked to hear what you're saying about potential even standover tactics that could be used in, say, old people's homes or in various organisations. I agree with you that undermining the secret ballot is incredibly r- regressive for democracy. Um, I don't think anything like that happened here, but I, I, I do worry that a lot of early voting undermines the purpose of an election campaign to some extent and that we actually should hear all of what each party has to say and then have an election day on which voting occurs. Well, the really scary thing is that in California and I believe in some other Democratic-run states, Democratic Party-run states, it, it it's absolutely legal uh, to have this kind of group voting. And I think we're going to see a return to the 19th century where we did have, uh, you know, unions and political parties and civic organizations having a voting party and, you know, handing out ballots and everybody, you know, voting en masse. Uh, that's been promoted uh, in California and uh, there are stories of it happening in Minnesota, in the Somali community. Uh, you know, I think we're going to see, uh, uh, we're, we have seen a move in that direction. And I do find it uh, very, you know, very concerning. It, it, it undermines the individualism that is inherent in the entire idea of democracy. Uh, and I think many people, especially uh, people on the communitarian left, uh, enthusiastically embrace it that they believe that you know there's a black vote and an elderly vote and a hispanic vote instead of there being an individual vote uh and i yeah i do find it very worrying that that in some ways almost um underpins the whole issue of division in america whether we think about people as being individuals or whether they belong to identity groups um and i'm interested in your take on on that. Uh, I mean, I take your point that perhaps Trump isn't going away, that, um, irrespective of the final outcome of the election, that he, he'll be around making a lot of noise. But irrespective of that, this identity politics that seems to be gaining more and more traction and perhaps the way in which the media treats that and the way social media responds to that, these will be issues that go on beyond perhaps you know the next four years or even eight years into the future how, how do you see that playing out well I, I identitarian politics are getting greater and greater traction among the well 
I hesitate to call them liberal elites, but among people who consider themselves liberals, uh, yet that does not mean that they're gaining greater and greater traction among ordinary people. Uh, so my concerns for states like California is that it might tip the balance in the sense that if an election is going to be won by a margin of 1%, well, you know, getting 1% of people uh, enmeshed in identity politics might be enough to tip the election. Uh, is it broadly indicative of American society? I think absolutely not. Uh, you know, American society is thoroughly individualistic. And although, although elite spokespeople might want to be able to speak for their quote unquote community or, or, or to be able to speak for a group, it, it doesn't mean the group actually cares <laughs> that someone is speaking for them. And we've seen this in you know, the, the African-American vote for Trump, the uh, Hispanic vote for Trump, uh, you know, people are multifaceted and they are not, you know, you, you may be African-American and also be a homeowner and a small business person. And that does not necessarily put you in uh, one political camp or the other. I, I suspect that a lot of the identitarian politics that we see in the U.S. is mostly wishful thinking on the part of an elite that wants to speak for those identity groups. Uh, but of course, we don't have data on this. So it's very hard to, you know, to, I can assert what I believe is going on, but I'm speaking from Sydney, Australia. So who really knows? Of course, the, the dangers are, are pretty obvious though, right? That even if there's one, two, three percent of society, maybe it's an elite that, whose views aren't, aren't reflected by the population as a whole, it's, there's a danger that if they take over the right institutions or they dominate the right institutions, however you want to put that, they can have an outsized effect on, on how people think. And of course, we've seen that in various periods of history. Um, so how do you view this at the moment? Do you think, for example, in universities, uh, is there a danger that the universities really become run by a new type of thick, substantive ideology? Call it social justice, call it what you want. Um, do you think that's a danger in the States? Do you think that's a danger in Australia? Oh, universities have become thoroughly ideologized and they are a major center of identity politics, not just in the U.S., but throughout the English speaking world. Uh, that said, universities are becoming marginalized in, uh, you know, in larger society and in social debates. Uh, increasingly, uh, who who speaks loudest is not the university appointed expert. Uh, but is the most evocative uh, celebrity or uh, YouTuber or, or podcaster <laughs> and, you know, the person who can, you know, influence an audience. And when we talk about influencers, quote unquote, we rarely mean university professors. <laughs> and, you know, it's those influencers who are able to sway their fans much more than the established uh, organs of authoritative opinion. So on the one hand, I think it's unfortunate that universities are going down their own rabbit hole. Uh, on the other hand, once they go down the rabbit hole, they self-marginalize and yeah. you know, people move to other uh, sources of authority. Social media companies, of course, have been roped into the efforts to suppress those alternative uh, bases of authority, but they keep popping up. And I think there's going to be no way ultimately, at least in a free society, like the United States, uh, to keep control of 
public opinion. I mean, just look at the election result. I mean, okay, Donald Trump did not get a majority, but that said, uh, you know, his policies are not necessarily going to resonate with the majority. I mean, his policies were for, you know, massive tax cuts, were, you know, broadly uh, pro-Wall Street. Uh, you know, I mean, his his policy set was a typical Republican policy set, which, you know, historically has attracted something in the high 40s percentage of the U.S. population. So, you know, he's gotten a he's gotten a typical Republican result with this election, despite the extraordinary, absolutely united uh, front. Uh, and actually, I use the word united front because Joe Biden himself called for a united front against Donald Trump. Uh, well, the fact that Donald Trump still got whatever, 47, 40, you know, 6, 48 percent of the vote, despite every established source of authority in the United States condemning him repeatedly for five years, shows you that the power of these uh, organs of authority is is not what they wish it were. Indeed. And I wonder if, I mean, you made that point about universities essentially decaying and, and and I agree I, I much lament it but but it is what it is in the in the tide of history I, I wonder if the same is true of sort of big media and and those other elite institutions that have been promulgating the the kind of hysteria about Trump that it's I wonder if they're actually desperately trying to cling on to relevance by doing that um or whether it's got anything to do with that, or, or just whether they'll they'll pass away in the next decade or so, and continue to diminish in importance, and and perhaps then it's possible that you know a thousand flowers will bloom from the the possibilities <laughs> of the internet, and you know a, a, a million podcasts or whatever. Uh-huh. We're all Maoists today, the the United Front versus the Thousand Flowers. So there we go. Um, uh, look, the, the the traditional media organizations are not disappearing. Uh, they are consolidating in a way. So the New York Times, for example, which has been, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry to use the word rapidly anti-Trump. And I say it because even an article, I mean, they did a major report exposing uh, to their credit, e- exposing corruption at the World Health Organization. And this major report ex- exposing corruption at the World Health Organization even managed to condemn Trump for not supporting reforms of the World Health, Org- Health Organization, uh, even though it's a report confirming Trump's position on the World Health Organization. So like the, the, the New York Times is has, show, has become somehow congenitally unable to, not just to praise Trump, but to write any article on any topic without incidentally condemning Trump along the way. Um, yet, it's one of the top 100 websites in the world. Its, uh, its circulation has been expanding, not contracting. Uh, its website has been you know, one of the most indexed, most cited websites in the world. It's highly influential. Um, they are not disappearing. They are consolidating. And, and I say consolidating, not expanding. Right, they're consolidating. In, they're they're retreating into their own world and becoming much more dominant within their own world. So there are a few winners, like the New York Times. There are many losers, like the traditional metropolitan newspapers all across America, who maybe have been more balanced, who maybe are just trying to report the news. Uh, well, they're disappearing. 
right? The, the, but the, the establishment uh, news organizations, whether it's you know, CBS News or the New York Times uh, or MSNBC, they are not suffering uh, this, you know, fate that I think, uh, you know, anti-establishment campaigners wish they would. Uh, they're doing better than ever. Uh, it's that middle ground of uh, that middle ground of ordinary uh, workaday elite opinion. You know, uh, metropolitan newspapers in small and medium cities. They're the ones who are disappearing as power goes either to uh, the, you know, power to the people, the podcasters, the YouTubers, or to these few established organs that remain in place. And, and I don't lament that. I want to be clear. I, I see that as a trend that, you know, is unstoppable at this point, but is not undesirable. I, I would say maybe is even desirable and that I don't think people's opinions should be mediated by a staid board of, you know, to put it frankly, generally, you know, white, well-off, upper middle class, university educated people who form the editorial board of a, a typical, you know, middle city newspaper. Why should they be the sole arbiters of respectable opinion? Much better that wherever you are in the world, you can either go for the New York Times or you can go for Breitbart. And really, that's up to you. Yeah, I think this process that you described is definitely happening, and I, I'm similarly optimistic about it in a sense, um, especially with regard to old-fashioned newspapers and magazines and things like that. I'll tell you why I'm more worried about the universities, though, and that's just because you know, with some even something as even a company as well established as the New York Times, I mean, you're saying it's cons consolidating and not sinking, but you could see how a newspaper could, you know, uh, be very open to. Public feedback, in a sense, in the sense that if it's not being, if it's not perceived to be producing good, balanced news, people will stop reading it. It'll, you know, lose subscribers, etc. Universities, okay, this isn't typical, but if you look at the, some of the biggest universities, some of the richest universities, I should say, in the states, Harvard has something like a forty billion dollar endowment. Stanford is something like seventeen or eighteen billion. Okay, these are at the you know top of the curve, but and these are private universities, and then you have the whole fact that, you know, in many countries, New Zealand, the UK, uh, Canada, a lot of the universities, uh, the states too, a lot of the universities are, are supported by the government. So it gives them a certain solidity. They have very good streams of revenue. They have a certain respectability. They have a kind of imprimatur. So I, I, I think that while there is going to be a shift towards uh, YouTube and towards uh, blogs and Twitter and whatever else it is, influencers, um, it is actually quite a big thing if one particularly... Uh, particular ideological camp takes over the universities because they're, they're actually mighty fortresses in certain ways. They are, and, and I don't want to minimize that, but I think we should also be aware that universities are rapidly changing. The arts and social sciences, my discipline, your discipline, uh, are on the way out. You know, we are disappearing within that university. So as universities are moving forward, it's their artificial intelligence research institutes and their physics research institutes and their, their molecular biology research institutes that are moving forward. We're being left behind. And just as, you know, fields like theology and Latin and Greek, sorry to strike so close to home, have mainly disappeared from universities, uh, so too will my own field, sociology and, uh, you know, history is even threatened in many places uh, with declining student numbers. So 
you know, it, it is true that even among science and engineering and medicine faculties, there is a kind of woke consensus, uh, but it's a pretty soft woke consensus. It it's, it's goes only so far as kind of kowtowing and being, uh, you know, being polite in the use of language, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I don't lament the demise of the N-word. You know, it's fine that that sort of thing is gone. But the sciences, engineering, medicine, they're not so woke that they're willing to, uh, you know, cut off their noses to spite their faces. Now, uh, I don't embrace the shift in the university. I lament it. I think it's sad that the, you know, the university I was tempted into uh, 30 years ago is disappearing. But institutions are always changing. And, you know, it's it's. Uh, they're on the way out. That is, the arts and social sciences are on the way out. Nowhere more so than here in Australia, where the government has just announced essentially the elimination of any government subsidy for the arts and social sciences starting next year. Yeah, so I suppose the big difference between, say, the humanities and and science and engineering, vis-a-vis the the woke issue, was that the the theory that gave rise to it was actually generated by humanities disciplines, whereas science and engineering might be recipients of it, but they're not generating it. So perhaps if the um, humanities do decline, and and I share your sadness about that, um, but perhaps if they do, then that influence will diminish within universities because the the sciences are not going to add to it. They 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 reactive, reactive to it rather than generators of it. Well, the sciences will still have, for example, you know, gender targets to increase diversity in their disciplines. But I don't view that as necessarily a bad thing. I mean, applied too mechanistically, it can be a bad thing. But yeah, physics should do more to attract women to physics. I I have no problem with that. Uh, And that's the kind of lesson they take. That is, they don't take the, uh, the lessons about you know, everybody should, uh, on their assignments, state their preferred pronouns just in case their uh, teacher wants to call on them. I mean, that sort of fringe, uh, fringe wokeness doesn't get very far in the sciences, not because scientists are against it. I think scientists would be broadly sympathetic, but because scientists just don't bother. I I mean, you know, in the arts and social sciences, where we argue over transgender uh, over the gender identity of our students. And I've had colleagues talk about students saying a male identifying student said this in class, but a female identifying student responded that. Uh, Well, scientists are simply still talking about the need to get women (laughs) in their programs. You know, not about, uh, you know, what are the implications of gender identity for this? And, uh, you know, so look, I, I'm equivocal about this. I, I don't, uh, you know, a lot of what has come under the, the label wokeness, I don't disagree with. Uh, I disagree with the way, the very authoritarian way that it has been uh, implemented and the way people have been persecuted uh, who disagree with this new orthodoxy. Um, and that, I think that persecution, that, that wholehearted commitment to the new orthodoxy will be lacking as the university shifts towards a more being more 
technocratic institutions that are really concerned with uh, you know managerialist and neoliberal uh, goals. Now, I'm one of those who's complained about those managerialist and neoliberal approaches, but those those approaches do tend to deaden <laughs> the politics that uh, that motivate some of these uh, witch hunts. Well, uh, one thing uh, that Michael and I sometimes worry about, though, is that the, uh, for lack of a better word, the sort of neoliberal aspect of the university, um, which in some ways was positive, right? You want to give consumers more choice, or, you know, students, we should call it, I guess, you know, you want to give people more choice. um, You want to make the university more responsive. But then um, it actually reduces your ability to sort of stand firm against various sorts of pressure, right? Because you get into this sort of the customer is always right mindset, which may be appropriate if you're serving beer or coffee or whatever it is. Uh, but when it comes to questions of knowledge and accuracy, it may not be uh, the best approach to have. Can you see that? Do you see that mechanism? Do you recognize that mechanism? Well, the only area of sociology in which people are currently hiring is bizarrely critical race studies and critical race studies, which for decades has always been an area where it's you know incredibly difficult to get a job is suddenly you know jobs are raining from heaven uh, for people who are studying uh, studying race from a Marxist perspective. So you know consumer demand works in mysterious ways. Uh, that said, I'm not really talking here about um, well, I don't think that neoliberalization and managerialism are good for universities. What I'm saying is that they do tend to deaden the ideological edge uh, of the sorts of uh, uh, cultural problems that we were just talking about. I mean, it, it takes it, it it takes a cultural crusade and turns it into a bureaucratic procedure. And again, I don't endorse that. I'm I'm often in the position of saying that things I don't like really aren't that harmful, right? So uh, I don't like that. But once it becomes a simple bureaucratic procedure, well, then we all know how to check you know check the box. And any job I apply for, I have to include with it a statement of my commitment to diversity. <laughs> once everyone has to include a statement of commitment to diversity in every job application it kind of loses its meaning. Uh, and I think that's what we're likely to see from, you know, even more so from universities in the future. Yes. Uh, I, I'm concerned that the, the kind of, to use that word, neoliberal push in universities, which, which I've witnessed over the last three decades, really, um, is undermining them as cultural institutions. So I, I tend to agree with you that it might take the edge off the, the kind of, rabid end of the of of the woke movement um but i'm concerned that at the same time it will take down the the whole purpose of the university in my mind which is as a cultural institution of which science is certainly an important part but so is the humanities and to lose that would be a tragedy for our civilization i believe universities are no longer cultural institutions And, and if you're looking for the future of uh, Western culture and world culture and where they will flourish, don't look to the universities. Uh, look somewhere else. Look to the online world. Look to the world of online magazines. Uh, you know, the universities are not where it's at. Universities around the world are absolutely dedicated to becoming uh, monoline scientific research organizations 
that use teaching simply to generate income to support that scientific research. And that's been very clear here in Australia. Uh, it's clear in the U.S. with the direction of uh, you know big endowments and uh, big contributions, I should say, you know, major philanthropy. Uh, the Bill Gateses and the Jeff Bezoses of the world are not establishing historical research initiatives. Uh, they're putting their money into big science, and that's what the universities want to do. That's where they see their mission. Uh, I mean, if you, I did a, a survey of the Australian Group of Eight University Strategic Research Initiatives. There are, I'm going to, off the top of my head, I think that there are 55 of them, uh, and I think the number is 44, no, 40, 45 out of 55, and maybe one off, uh, are dedicated to scientific research. The others are, you know, pan-social. So is an urbanization research center really a social science center? Well, when they say urbanization, what they really mean is smart grid to improve cities, right? So even the, even the quote-unquote social science research initiatives uh, probably have a science flavor to them. And there were zero zero humanities-oriented major research initiatives among 55, no, it's 54 total major research initiatives, of which 45 were in the sciences. So among those 54 major research initiatives, none <laughs> were in the humanities at all. Uh, that's the way universities are going. So to what extent do you think this is uh, sort of, I mean, obviously you're focusing on, the, on this as a strategic decision. The government wants to go into science more than humanities, wants to support the sciences more than humanities. But um, this this recent decision by the Australian government basically to effectively up the fees for humanities right. uh, students, um, to, that, that came relatively soon after the election of a center-right liberal government. Now, to what extent... No, it you, came a whole year after. It only came uh, a few months ago. A whole year. Okay, well, um, yeah. okay, slightly off on that point. But to what extent do you think uh, that is actually a sort of subtle move in the cultural wars, uh, i.e. the right-leaning Australians uh, yeah. in the government are it looking at a, the humanities it, and thinking, it, this is where all the crazy is coming from. Let's, it it uh, is the least subtle move in the culture wars there has ever been. There is no <laughs> subtlety about it whatsoever. Uh, Dan T. Han, our education minister, made very clear that his goal in increasing the cost of humanities courses by 113% was to steer students away from the humanities. <laughs> so he, there's no... If Andrew butts about that, he said that he wants students doing degrees that prepare them for careers, and he did not consider the humanities to be job ready. And thus, he was steering students towards degrees that you know he felt would provide jobs for the you know for the future. Uh, so there's there's no qualms uh, in the government about saying that this is it's not exactly a culture war. They didn't use the word culture war, but that this is you know about pushing students away from disciplines that are, you know, troublesome, uh, that don't add anything in, in their view uh, to students' education. And to some extent, they're right. Uh, you know, my own, my own view of the humanities is that we should be embedded in broader degree programs, not uh, you know, a, a separate entity unto ourselves. Uh, the whole argument that society needs a broader understanding or needs some self-reflection implies that business engineering and medical students should be doing some humanities and social sciences courses. Uh, the idea of having a cadre of people who are only educated in the humanities, uh, separate and apart from 
everyone else in the university who do no humanities, well, that can't be supported with the argument that people need a broad outlook on life. That's a good point. Um, I'm interested in just untangling a couple of things, though. Do you think that the motivation of the Australian government is primarily economic in steering people away from the humanities, or are they actually trying to push back against some of the political implications of of the, the movements that have come out of the humanities faculties in the last 30 years or so? Look, I can't speak for other people. I can only guess at their mindsets. And my own guess is that in their minds, there's very little difference between those two propositions. Uh, that is a good education in that mindset is one that explicitly prepares people for a career. And obviously, uh, while studying, well, to use the bit more of the day, critical race theory, while studying critical race theory may be valid in its own right, and while researching critical race theory is certainly, in my view, valid in its own right, uh, I don't think anyone in critical race theory would make the argument that it explicitly prepares students for a career. So, uh, you know, fighting their political opponents and preparing students for a career are really flip sides of the same coin. I don't think there's much space between... I mean, those are different words we put on the same basic feeling. Well, I do think, I mean, for, for my colleagues in classics, because, I mean, it is a terrible thing for classics departments in Australia. They're going to have to deal with the fallout from this, and it's very sad for the yeah. subject. But I guess what, what I would try and say is just that to the extent that we can present ourselves as good academic citizens, and not only within the academy, but to other... Australians and New Zealanders, we can, to the extent that we can say to them, we're not just in it for our political views or for a particular conception of culture. We're sort of open to everybody. To that extent, we'll be stronger and we'll be more able to, uh, you know, appeal to even center-right governments when they come in to say, no, we have a role to play in society as well. Sure. Look, everyone wants to get control of the pot of gold that is our common uh, property of, of the taxpayers, right? We all want control of the mechanisms of government to support ourselves. Uh, I would love to have control of the uh, of the pot of money, <laughs> the community pot, the community chest to support sociology research. It would be fantastic. And I'm sure you'd love to have it to support classics. And, uh, you know, the, other people have won that competition. Now, should they have won the competition? Well, we can debate that. Uh, they have won that competition. And so, you know, we have to look for other places to do our work. And thus, I view most of my intellectual work to be writing for Foreign Policy Magazine, where I'm a, a columnist. I write you know, three times a month for Foreign Policy Magazine. I write monthly for Quadrant uh, here in Australia. This is where I put my intellectual efforts. Uh, my teaching and my formal research that gets published in formal journals that nobody reads, uh, that's just to pay my bills. Uh, that's not my intellectual effort. If you want to be a, a classicist, well, be a classicist. Uh, I'm sure if you go back uh, 100 or 200 years, very few classicists would have had university posts. Uh, if you look at the founders of your discipline, the really influential people who, you know, I mean, I don't know if, uh, 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 oh, well, I just blanked on his name. I can't believe it. Decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbons. Uh, <laughs> Given, I'm sorry. I, I've even read the book. I, I don't. I don't know if, if Given uh, ever Given had a 
post at a university or not, but certainly many other classicists of his generation. I mean, Charles, Charles Darwin, for that matter, didn't have a post at a university, but made his intellectual contributions. And, you know, we're going, we have to go back to that where, yeah, the university doesn't support my area. Well, my intellectual contribution is made elsewhere. Well, Did I Gibbon think, have um, a, a post as a professor of classics? I'm pretty sure he didn't. I mean, one of my great <laughs> heroes, George Grote, for a long time worked in his family bank, although he did end up eventually in uh, University College London. But in the 19th century, um, there were a lot of professional classes at German universities and, and the development of what the Germans called Altertumswissenschaft, the sort of science of antiquity, was bound up with the professionalization of the German um, higher education system. But no, I mean, it's a fair point. Like, if you go back to the Renaissance and you know, the origins of textual criticism and stuff like that, that was all very sort of open-ended and freelance. And, I mean, thinking about people like Darwin, it, it does seem to be the case as well that the more sort of outside-the-box thinking often happens literally outside the, the institutional box, right? That you, you often have more freedom. But I will say, though, that there are certain, I mean, I, I'm like you to some extent, I'm by no means as prolific as you, but I try and write for magazines and things, and I, I find that quite satisfying intellectually. But I will say, I mean, I'm also writing an article at the moment on three clay tokens found in archaeological excavations in Athens. And I think that's actually a worthwhile thing to be doing. I mean, call me crazy, but I think that, that actually adds to, our, you know, studying these things in detail actually adds to our knowledge of antiquity, and it's a kind of work, and you know, other disciplines have similar things. There's a certain type of work that is actually very difficult to uh, get people to pay for on the market, but which arguably should still be done. And there's probably some fundamental research in other fields that that need support. And surely the university is a good way of doing that still. Well, but that is a very, forgive me, um, selfish uh, point of view. Uh, uh, look, consider. Uh, how many people today read ancient Assyrian? Uh, used to be a dime a dozen in the United Kingdom to read ancient Assyrian. And when the, but when the new flood story tablets were discovered, uh, the person who accidentally just had a, a clay tablet from ancient Samaria that a, uh, a relative a few hundred, a hundred more years ago had brought back to England looting the cultural heritage of, of Iraq. Uh, and it turned out that it were not for this looted clay tablet brought back as a souvenir for Iraq from Iraq, no one would have known that there was an even older, this, this ancient, ancient version of the flood story that was discovered on the tablet, predating the Bible story by whatever, how many thousand years. All right, I heard an interview with the Oxford academic to whom the tablet was brought. And he said, you know, it's a good thing this got here now because when I die, I probably won't be replaced, and there'll be no professor of ancient Sumerian at Oxford University. Uh, and, and I believe it or not, I heard the same story from a professor of, of Caucasian, modern Caucasian languages, and said, there won't be a single Abkhaz-speaking professor in the UK when I retire. Well, what's wrong with their fields? I mean, the study of Caucasian languages, the, the study of ancient tablets. I mean, these are all things that, you know, universities used to consider important and don't bother with that much anymore. There, there, there are unlimited numbers of research questions out there that could be asked. And no one is asking because those fields are not in demand. Now, I, I don't celebrate that. Again, I'm, I'm not coming here to advocate for that. I'm just trying to put it in perspective that, well, you know, people probably spoke ancient Greek 
better 100 years ago than they do now because we've lost some of that uh, knowledge base. And then there'll be never there'll never be anything to stop somebody learning ancient Assyrian if they if they wish and to study ancient tablets from Athens and and so on. They they may not be paid by universities to do it, but yeah, that that does but my job. My university has made very clear to me that my job is to publish peer-reviewed academic journal articles and to teach students in the classroom. That's what I do for a living. Anything else I do is my avocation, maybe, but it's not my job. Uh, now, neither of those activities really contributes important knowledge to the world. It, it, I mean, my work for academic journal articles, while I enjoy it, while I consider it valuable in, in a personal sense, I mean, let's face it, no one reads it. Uh, even people who cite it don't read it. I mean, I, from looking at the citations of people who have cited my work, they've simply read the title and you know, such and such topic has been discussed many times in the past. Babonis 2013, Smith 2014, you know, and a long list of people who've mentioned this topic before. It's very rare. It happens occasionally, but it's very rare that some uh, citation of my work actually shows that someone has read the article that they're citing. But my work that I write for the public is widely read. The analysis I do for Foreign Policy Magazine is widely read, and, and I get follow-up interview calls. No one's ever called me to interview me about an article I wrote for an academic journal, uh, but that Sydney Morning Herald piece on polling got picked up globally. Uh, and I think that's intellectually much more important work. I, I, I don't lament the loss of academic research that no one is ever going to know happened except me. Oh, you must you must admit though that, that um, it's hard to think of an example right off the top of my head, but there's a lot of academic research which seemed completely irrelevant and pure blue skies thinking, and then it ended up actually having uh, either Absolutely. you know really important applications or just sort of changing the way we viewed the world in a major way. Absolutely, but you know which those are, <laughs> and, it, and unless you can tell in advance which those are, well, you know. Are you seriously suggesting that we should, at random, hire people to study, you know, 500 different things and hope some of them might uh, turn out later to be useful? Uh, I mean, that's a very self-indulgent uh, approach to what a university is for. It's a very self-indulgent approach to, to public funding. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just that the taxpayers should fund me to do whatever I please I would like that, and I would have been happy to have been born 20 years earlier and have been much more a beneficiary of a university system that made that possible. But I won't argue that it's a rational way to go about spending public money. Well, it was a very mid-20th century thing that that became a, a big deal, that you could be yeah. paid taxpayers' money to study obscure things at your, at your will. Of course, in, in the past, scholars tended to have in, independent means of some sort, uh, if they if they were going to seriously pursue scholarship, but perhaps in the future, if we become more leisured people due to automa yeah. automation and so on, that there'll be more freedom to pursue whatever we, we want. We are very leisured people uh, compared to people in the past, and you know we can choose to spend our leisure time, uh, you know, instead of going to the beach. You know, studying an ancient language that's really up to us. But I'm glad that you mentioned that that golden age of the tenure system, because really 
it came and went. And it went because the first or second generation of people who were granted that unlimited license to study what they want used that license in very self-indulgent ways to produce lots of so-called research that uh, was often completely irrelevant to the societies that were paying for it. And society got quickly, t- quickly got tired of it. Uh, you know, all the kind of things you decried uh, uh, about universities uh, becoming, you know, extreme woke, uh, you know, social crusading organizations. Well, all of that's a product of the tenure system. Uh, when you give people carte blanche to do what they want, they become very quirky indeed. <laughs> and really having some accountability um, maybe isn't a bad thing. And now, I, I, I'm not, you know, I want the tenure system to survive my career, absolutely. Uh, but it doesn't mean I think it's a good thing in an objective sense. Yeah, no, I agree with the point about accountability. Um, the thing about it was, you know, just some subject disappearing completely. I mean, I've tried to uh, develop with Michael before. We haven't succeeded to, to, to develop a kind of libertarian defense of state funding for universities. <laughs> and I, the best we've managed to come up with is something about choice, right? That you want to avoid a kind of monopolistic system or, you know, a system which has too few choices. You want a g- genuine market so that, you know, just as people can come into the uh, fruit and vegetable market and see tomatoes and carrots and whatever else, you can come into university and the thing about universities as well is that you enter universities when you're quite young. You don't really know what's out there. You might not even know there's such a, a strange vegetable out there as classical Greek. And so there may be an argument that if we just like remove all of the, uh, you know, the places, the people that are selling carrots or, or the people that are offering you classical Greek, that actually restricts choice. And all of us will fight to the death to be among the disciplines on your government mandated list. Because I guarantee you, there are an unlimited number of would-be disciplines that have been unable to get on that list. Just as, you know, there are are thousands of varieties of oranges in the world, but there are only two in the supermarkets. You're you're either going to buy a navel orange or a Valencia orange. Maybe a blood orange. Maybe there are three. Uh, And that's it, right? Blood oranges are brilliant. I wish I'd been exposed (laughs) to them earlier in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the same with fields. If you give actual freedom of choice, then you're going to see a consolidation of students into, well, look at psychology. Uh, I mean, psychology has been a runaway success. Students want to study psychology in droves. The same for criminology. Um, There's no practical employment for the thousands of students who study uh, psychology and criminology. Yet, students love it. You know, they think psychology is fascinating. They're banging down the doors. Psychology departments can have extremely high standards, can have arbitrary grading, can do anything they want to drive students away because the endless stream of students who want to learn about the human mind never goes away. Criminology, as long as there are TV shows about crime, there'll be students wanting to study criminology. Yeah, that's the Uh, one. When I was a a postdoc at La Trobe University, there was a, a boom in forensic psychology and I was wondering why this was until somebody explained to me there was a TV show yeah. with an attractive young woman who drove around in a sports car who was a forensic psychologist. So. I once had a student with a straight face ask me for advice on what to study to become a police psychic. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I had no answer for her uh, that would satisfy her. Uh, but, you know, this is what's driving demand for non-vocational disciplines. 
for vocational disciplines, okay, there's there's a built-in there, there's a built-in stream of students who want the certification to become an engineer, to become a finance professional, to you know, to do to become a medical doctor, to become a lawyer. Uh, these vocational disciplines have a ready audience. For the rest of us, you know, do you seriously want a government mandated list of fields just so that classics can be put on it? Uh, and would classics make the cut anyway? Well, to to be fair, I mean that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't quite how I put the argument, <laughs> at least in my own head. I mean. Um, it was more that, you know, uh, it's true what you say that there's an infinite number of subjects which could be put on the list. But I guess what I'm making is surprisingly enough, a more pragmatic argument that we just don't want to restrict the choice too much. And of course, then you have to argue about where exactly the, the tipping point is. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it's sort of like you can take an analogy from medicine. It doesn't need, there's probably some obscure diseases. There are obscure diseases uh, that sort of 10 people a year of die, uh, die of globally, 10, 10 people a year die of globally. And you don't want to have a lot of researchers in that, but you want one or two. Okay. <laughs> now, if you change the analogy, it lo loses a lot of the force of the argument because nobody's actually dying. But in a similar way, you know, you may not want 100 professors of uh, Acadian or whatever, but there may be an argument to have one or two just in case somebody in the country wants to study that. that that that's more my argument but anyway and, perhaps it just know, why why acadian and not the ancient languages of southeast asia perhaps the choice just does one or two of those there sorry the, the, perhaps the choice just does come back to what people want to pursue i mean if, if you want as you as you said salvatore rather than going to the beach to learn ancient arcadian then there's nothing to stop you doing that and pursuing yeah. whatever studies you want within whatever free time you have well that's the true that, that that's the true sort of free market argument then that the that what's in the market also adjusts to what you know what people are going to want or what you anticipate people are going to want whether they're going to want more carrots or ancient greek or whether they're going to want more tomatoes or engineering um and maybe you know this okay. new this new world we've been talking about on on the internet uh that's going to be much more responsive to these things and it's going to take the shape yeah. of where you know what people are actually interested in Okay, uh, we've gone for an hour and 10, so we think we've probably reached a natural place to close. And uh, I think we've, we've heard uh, Salvatore being quite sanguine, actually, maybe a bit more sanguine than, than I, I would be, but <laughs> it's good to have, I don't know if you're an optimist or you're just accepting your fate more uh, elegantly I, than I, I am. <laughs> I, I'm very optimistic about the future of what I unabashedly call American civilization, or you might call individualist civilization. I think we shouldn't mistake the demise of our pet uh, niches or even the demise of ourselves for the demise of a civilization. And many things that are that may seem pathological uh, might just be the pathological manifestations of uh, trends that are broadly positive in their effect. I mean, my favorite example is the anti-vaccine movement. I believe in vaccines. I take vaccines every, every year. I get my flu vaccine. I'm a big fan of vaccines. And when the coronavirus vaccine comes available, you betcha I'm going to be first in line to get a jab. Uh, but uh, I believe in freedom. I believe in freedom of speech and freedom of association. I believe in a robust public debate. 
And if people want to argue against the utility of vaccines or even argue that they're damaging, it's great that they're out there. Uh, and I don't believe in suppressing them. I, I don't believe in, uh, you know, the Googles and Facebooks of the world trying to demote their content and prevent them from organizing. Uh, they are a, you know, in a way, a pathological manifestation of what I, the good things I believe in, which is, you know, intellectual independence, making up your own mind, coming to your own conclusions. Uh, that's, you know, free, getting together with like-minded people to put your ideas in the public sphere. So it's a, you know, it, it, I don't have to agree with the anti-vaccine movement to see the value of the society, see the value of the civilization that spawns the anti-vaccine movement. Indeed. If you, if, that's what I'm hopeful about. If we were to suppress them and, and other people who espouse what we might see as ridiculous ideas, we would in fact be shutting down the, the basis for actually having sensible and reasoned debate. And, and the good ideas and the conditions that bring about the, the really interesting good ideas. Thank anyway. you, Salvatore. It's been a, a wonderful conversation. Yeah, and thank you so much. Thank and um, I'll, I'll just say uh, at the end again, you should check out his book. Well, many books, but the one I have in front of me, The New Authoritarianism, which I've read. It's an excellent book, Trump, Populism, and the Tyranny of Experts. And also check out his many articles for our quadrant. Best, best on Politics 2018 by the Wall Street Journal. That's right. right. And, and also uh, Quadrant and uh, Sydney Morning Herald, Foreign, foreign Policy, you were, you were saying earlier, you write a regular column. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you.